in the first 13 verses of chapter 3, Paul basically says what he just told us in the second chapter of Ephesians. And so I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, Lord, you know, this, what am I going to preach on this again? Uh, you know, the people are going to think, you kind of get tired of this repetition, you know, you want to do a little variety. And the Lord keeps on saying, preach the text. I'm saying, well, Lord, come on, give me something else. I mean, the, the text is kind of repetitious. I don't want to just do repetition. People aren't going to like me. They're going to think I'm uncool or something like that. Keep on hearing, preach the text. So I look at all the commentators. Maybe the commentators are going to have some nice commentary on, on this whole thing. The commentators struggle with it, too. They have to find, invent stuff to talk about because the text basically repeats what Paul already said. So it's getting kind of irritating. I keep on hearing, preach the text. Look a little harder, Greg. Preach the text. Well, on top of everything else, that was stressing me out. That was stressing me out. And it wasn't until yesterday morning, thank you, Lord, that he finally began to show me what he was trying to get at here. And I'm glad I'm sticking with the text. But it kind of bugged me. Now that you're all really enthused about what I'm going to talk about this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm also really glad for a place where you can come. And it's okay to have had a miserable week. Uh, you know where. You can put on a smiley face if you got one, but you don't have to put on a smiley face. You can put on your sad face, your grouchy face. Even if, you, even if you're the preacher, I like that. I could be miserable if I want. I know that's probably very immature to come and dump on everybody, but okay, I'm immature. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> <laughs> Ephesians chapter 3. Hey, if being immature makes you feel better, I'm all for it. Okay. There's a sermon there. For this reason, Paul says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dash. This bugs me. I would have had a sermon there, but, but he, he pauses. Paul, Paul is going to start to pray. Now, you want to know, for this reason, I'm a, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles, blank. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's... What? What happened to your train of thought, Paul? Well, if you go down to verse 14, you, he picks it up again. He was starting to pray. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. But apparently, right in the middle of his sentence, he stops. And now he's going to say, you know what, before I even pray... I want to tell you what I just told you, and I'm, I'm going to back it up with some, with, with some supernatural revelation. So let me repeat myself in case it's not clear. Surely you have heard, verse 2, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. He says, I'm getting this through divine inspiration. As I've also written to you briefly, namely four verses earlier. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it, is now, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Here's what I'm talking about, he says in verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one another, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I came, he says in verse 7. Uh, the bulletin doesn't include this part, but I'm going to include it. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Again, Paul's reminding them that he's writing under divine inspiration. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. It's the fourth time you use the word mystery. 
which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The purpose for the whole thing was for God to show off his wisdom. The purpose for God uniting the two races, Jews and Gentiles together, was for God to show off his wisdom to the angelic hosts, the, the principalities and powers and authorities, which for Paul means both holy angels and unholy angels. The church is the way that God shows off his wisdom according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This thing has been planned from eternity. In him and through him, through faith in him, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. So I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. It took us all summer to preach 15 verses, but we're going to cover these 13 this morning. So let's pray. Lord, I would just ask that you'd make your word come alive through the, through the bringing forth of your word this morning. I just sense, and many of us just sense, God, that you are preparing a people to really do an uh, incredible, unusual thing here in the Twin Cities. And that's your purpose, Lord. And we're very aware that we cannot, by our plans and programs, bring that about, Lord. It's got to come by the working of your Spirit. And Lord, I would ask that this message this morning would be a stepping stone to building this kind of people but you've got to do it, Lord. Let your spirit fall down and take these words, however fragmented they might be, from coming out of a mouth that's been through a fragmented week. Take them, Lord, and use them and bless them and write them into our hearts and eyes and ears and, and make it come alive to us, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. There's three things that I want to say about uh, this passage. Though the content is quite repetitious, there's three things that I think we can learn from it. The first has to do with the importance of the topic, the importance of the mystery. The second has to do with the nature of the mystery. And the third has to do with living the mystery. Let me talk about each of these. Paul has, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, been really stressing the fact that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary, there is now among believers to be no more racial hostility. He's talking primarily about racial unity here. It's a big topic for Paul. Now, Jesus Christ and, and the work on the cross, this is one of the central things that the cross brought about. Because of that, we are genuinely one together. We belong together. We're members of the same household. We belong to the same citizenship of heaven. We are, we are uh, bricks in the same temple that the Lord is building. All of that he's already talked about. And it's because of what Christ did. He's really stressing the fact that in Christ, there must be no racial divisions. The body of Christ must exemplify a kind of unity that the cross brings that the world could never bring. Now Paul is going to begin to pray for them. He's given this in the end of chapter 2, and he's going to step back and he's going to say, Lord, I, I, I'm going to pray for this reason. Because of what you've done on the cross, I'm going to pray that they get it. But just as he's doing that, he stops. And he backs off once again and he says, I'm not sure you've got it. Let me repeat myself. I'm speaking under divine inspiration. This was given to me by revelation. This isn't just my idea. I want to drive it home one more time. 
You Gentiles and you Jews, you people from different races, you are to be members of one another. Members of one another. When Paul thinks of a member, he, of a body, he's thinking of a finger or an ear or a toe or a knee. He's thinking of parts of the body. And so when Paul says that the mystery that he wants to drive home once again, he interrupts his prayer to drive home this message once again, the mystery is that these different races of people, because of the work of the cross, are now made members of one another. And what that's got to mean is that we are now attached to one another. Not just in a sort of theoretical, hypothetical, maybe sort of someday kind of way, but in a real way, functioning together. The same life flowing through us, the same head directing us, moving together in coordination. Almost, you might say, fused with one another, attached to one another, inseparable from, inseparable from one another, needing one another. And he's talking all the while about different races of people within the body of Christ. This is what the body of Christ should look like. You've heard all that before. What really stands out to me is the fact that Paul takes the time, God takes the time through Paul to repeat the whole matter again. And if that means anything to us, it's got to mean, it's got to mean that this is something that is very, very important for Paul. And if you're sitting here this morning saying, Greg, when are you going to get off the hobby horse of this racial unity stuff? My answer would be, I will get off the hobby horse when Paul gets off the hobby horse, but he's not off the hobby horse yet, so I can't get off of it. It's an important thing. If Jesus died as a central part of the work of the cross, to unite different races, if that was a part of the central work of the cross, then you know it's got to be important. If Jesus died to tear down the walls of hostility and the walls of, of, of division that have separated different races throughout history in order to build within himself one new race, you know it's got to be important. If Jesus Christ died so that he would have a body that would have a kind of unity that the world could never have, if he died so that there would be different people who once were enemies but now in him are attached together, feeding on one another, requiring one another, rubbing together, loving one another, if he died for that purpose, it's got to be important. And if Paul is willing to interrupt his prayer to go at the whole thing one more time, well then whatever else you get out of it, you know that this has got to be an important thing. This thing about racial unity within the body of Christ isn't some kind of footnote, a little peripheral matter, a little optional sort of thing, a thing that you could just as well do with or without. This isn't an option. This is a central part of the call of God, a central part of the gospel. And it's kind of baffling to me as to why, when it's so central to the gospel, it's so rarely preached about in the church. And Paul just seems to be so intent on it that it can't, he can't get away from it. Think of it this way. The Lord died to give himself a bride. One feature of the bride is that there's many members, fingers and toes. And part of those members is the fact that the body of Christ is to exemplify racial diversity. The Lord doesn't want an amputated bride, a bride with some of the, the, the members missing. He wants a whole bride. This is important. The Lord died to give himself a body. We are the body. We're the body here on earth. And the body functions when the members are functioning. You got a finger that doesn't work, you're going to be a little bit handicapped. But if the body isn't united, if the body isn't cohesive, if the body isn't rubbing together, working together, flowing into one another the way the body is called to do, and in such a way that we transcend some of the silly racial divides that our culture has been apart, then the body of Christ is to that degree handicapped, crippled, and unable to fully, functionally carry out the work that God has given to it. But the Lord wants a healthy body. This is important stuff. He wants a healthy body through him as whom his spirit can flow. And he can do a... You can do things in the world that the world can't do for itself, like manifest racial unity. It's an important point. 
The very fact that Paul repeats himself here shows the importance of the mystery. The second thing has to do with the nature of the mystery itself. He uses, this is a new piece here he gives. He didn't call it a mystery earlier. Now he calls this whole thing a mystery. And he wants to say to the Ephesians, I want you to know that I got this mystery, this mystery of this unity of the different races, I got this mystery by divine revelation. Now a mystery in Greek means something that is hidden or something that is concealed or something that is impenetrable. And Paul calls this radical kind of unity a mystery. They have unusual calf muscles. Uh, and, and they're about 25% stronger, and they've got a higher percentage of fast twitch muscles and all this sort of stuff. And there's also cultural reasons. They're raised in a country where they don't have very many cars, and they've got a lot of hills, and the kids got to run up the hills to get to school. And so you tend to raise people who are both physiologically and culturally better equipped to do faster running. Runner's World says that, and they got bombed for, not bombed literally, but they got, you know, a lot of people wrote in and said, that's racist. That's racist because you're locating their, their better running ability in, in, uh, in, in some racial, physiological, cultural aspect of who they are. But the trouble is, is that it seems right. <laughs> like, a lot of people have noticed this. Why are Kenyans so good? Well, here's a statistic that I don't like very much, but do you know that 88% of all violent crime is committed by males? And about 93% of all violent sexual crime is committed by males. Now, that does not justify anyone treating a male as a, you know, serial killer just because you're a male. You know, oh, please don't treat me like that. But it, it, it's there. I mean, when, and that doesn't surprise anyone. When was the last time you heard it, you saw on the news, you know, woman rapes five men? I, <laughs> it, it doesn't happen. And there's got to be reasons for that. And if you can say out loud the statistic, maybe you can begin to say, well, maybe we're doing, maybe the way men uh, are getting raised is, is hindering them, or maybe we got to cut out testosterone. I don't know what you're going to do. But the point is, is that that's a reality. Here's the point of Paul saying that this whole thing is a mystery, though. When Paul says that the unity in the body of Christ is rooted in the reality of what Jesus did for us, and when he says that it's a mystery, what he is getting at is this. That the unity of the different kinds of people from different cultural circumstances that is to constitute the body of Christ has nothing to do with the way things appear. Amen? It's got nothing to do with how you look or what cultural background you've got or, or how you wear your hair, and it's got nothing to do, look, do with how smart you are or how dumb you are or how you can sing or how you can't sing or how good you can dance or how, how you can't dance or, or any of that kind of stuff. It's got nothing to do with appearance. It is rooted in one fact and one fact alone, and that is what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary. He made out of us one body. He made out of us one people. He made out of us one household. He is making out of us one temple. And it's because of what he did on the cross that all of that is true. And if that is true, then nothing could be more irrelevant than what IQ you have or how fast you can run or whether you're stronger than somebody else or whether you're rich, or what kind of background you have, how many divorces you got, or what sin you're struggling with now. In other words, what defines us in the body of Christ, and we've got to learn to see this way, what defines us in the body of Christ is nothing but nothing but nothing other than the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And that is a mystery, because the natural mind can't understand it, can't grasp it. But see, here's the thing. That's what's got to motivate us and nothing else. And when we're motivated by just being the people of the cross and living this mystery, then we attain a kind of unity 
that the world could never give. And they noticed that. Because the reasons are totally different. It's a mystery. In fact, when we live the mystery, when we see ourselves and see each other and relate to each other as we are in Christ because of the cross, when we do that, then the differences, those differences that are so really pretty obvious, they become, the Bible's word for them is gifts. Gifts. If I'm getting life from Christ, then the fact that you're smarter than me is not going to intimidate me. In fact, you've got a gift. Can you share with me a gift of wisdom? And if you happen to be, you know, a little more sensitive than I am, I'm not going to be threatened by that and try to act like I'm as sensitive as you. Give me a gift of sensitivity. Give, give the church a gift of hospitality. And if you've got a great ability to make money, God just blesses everything you do, I'm not going to be intimidated by that because I, you know, it's not in my cards to, to ever do that. Rather, that's a blessing. Give to the Lord the gift of what Paul calls the gift of contribution, the gift of giving. Help those who don't have that ability. I mean, if you can sing better than I can sing, and most likely you can, give to the church and give to me the gift of, of, of leading in worship. The differences between us, even in fact, if you've got a past that is hurt and full of pain and full of mistakes and full of sin and jaded, even that can be a gift because it may be that I need to, I'm going through that right now, and if I hear that you survived it and you got through it, that will be an, that's a gift to me. And what we're called to do is to be our differences and make them gifts to one another. We've all got a role to play, a gift to give. And the differences that divide others unites us. That's the importance of the mystery, the nature of the mystery. And finally, let me talk about living the mystery. Here's a third thing I want us to get out of this passage. Paul stops to pray here that the people get it. And that already tells me a whole lot. You might think that Paul... He just talked about the need or how in the body of Christ, Christ has united the races. You might now think, if Paul was operating like a lot of people today operate, that he would say, okay, now here's the program. Here's how you can do it. Five easy steps to getting an integrated congregation. What, you know, you would have thought, let's be practical here. But what Paul does is he backs off and he says, okay, I'm going to pray that you get this mystery. Wait, maybe you don't have it yet. And so he's going he's to reiterate it one more time and then he's going to pray. But here's the point. He did this also in, in, in chapter 1, when he just gave uh, all this teaching in chapter 1. We saw it this summer about who we are in Christ. And then he stopped and he says, okay, now I'm going to pray for you. He prays that the church might understand the mystery that we are and that the church might understand the purpose why we exist, which he tells us in this chapter, verse 10, is to glorify God. And what's significant about that is this. The Bible always, and this is consistent with everything else we find in the New Testament, the Bible is always much more concerned that people understand who they are than it is concerned with what people do. Because what you do is always an outworking of who you are. The book of Ephesians itself is set up like this. Chapters 1 through 3 are all about our being, who we are. Chapters 4 through 6, we're going to see gradually transition into talking about what believers are supposed to do. Now, why is it set up like that? It's set up like that because Paul understands, and the whole New Testament is driven like this, that when you understand who you are, when the Holy Spirit reveals that to you, when you've got a good grip on that, then all of your behavior follows. But if you don't have a grip on that, then nothing but dysfunctional behavior follows. If you understand the stuff we talked about in chapter 1, and not just understand it intellectually, but if it's really in your heart, 
if you've learned how to see yourself like this, that you are redeemed, that you are saved, that you are washed by the blood of the Lamb, that you are put into Jesus Christ, and you sit in heavenly places, and the Father loves you with the same passionate love that he loves his own son, son with, if you understand all of that, and that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and therefore filled with the power of God, and the peace of God, and the joy of God, and that you're a veritable walking reservoir of God's power, and that no devil in hell can ever lay a finger on you when you've got that reservoir of divine power, if you understand that, well then that has magnificent repercussions on your behavior. It transforms you. If you just understand, if you see it, if you grasp it, if the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. But if you don't see that, then all the preaching in the world about the do's and the don'ts and you ought to be happy and you ought to fight this and you ought to be confident and you shouldn't be shamed and you shouldn't da-da-da-da-da-da and you ought to quit that, all of that will be coming out of emptiness, not fullness, and it will simply succeed in concealing the reality that you don't have fullness. You'll learn how to fake it. You'll learn how to pretend the Christian life, like getting a sick person to act healthy, when in fact they're not healthy. What they need to do is to get healthy. The Bible always stresses being over doing. You need direction and encouragement on doing, but what has to, what, what has to be behind the whole thing is being, and so it is in the church. So it is in the church. That's true individually, but it's true for us as a whole. The most important thing right now is for us to get this point, to get it, for the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us, that we could see and experience who we are. Unfortunately, there are tomes and tomes of books, volumes of books written that define the church in terms of its doing. Like a lot of people define Christians in terms of the doing. A Christian is a person who doesn't smoke and they do this and they go down and they, they, they do all these. You know, a Christian is the one who does and you define it in terms of doing. Well, some people do that with the whole church. The church is to be, uh, well, it's a program agency and it's supposed to be involved in all these different kind of agendas or whatever. And there's a lot of books out there now that talk about um, church growth, how to build a church, how to grow a church. And, and they're all about doing. Well, you got to... Here's what you got to do. You got to set up a committee. You got to set up a strategy. You got to set up a thermometer chart and get people to give and hire these people who are good at finances to go house to house and have people give pledges so you can make the thermometer chart. And you need a growth strategy and you need a target audience and you need a projection model and you need this kind of strategy and that kind of strategy. And they borrow from Amway and they borrow from 3M and they borrow from all these other companies and they turn the, the church, they turn the church into a corporation. There's even books about how to speak right, but I've never read one. Church is defined by its doing. You've got to do, 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 do. You think if you just do enough, that's going to make you a healthy church. You know, we saw last week, we, we drilled home last week, the, 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 the reality in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church is to be built on one foundation and one foundation alone, and that is the apostles and the, and the prophets. Man, come on, Greg. Water break. Getting all gum mouth. On the apostles and the prophets. And so one might, it might occur to somebody that if you're going to understand how to build a church or what the church is supposed to do, we ought to go to the Word of God. Because this is supposed to be the foundation. One of the things that I'm impressed with when I go to the Word of God and ask, what is the church supposed to be? Is I just get 
all tickled at, at all of the talk about target audiences and strategies. Don't you just find that all over the place? I mean, they have all these marketing techniques. It's, so, it's full of this, these marketing techniques and, and, and all this stuff about this preoccupation with numbers and it defines success by, I just love this kind of stuff. And, and how to, to, 10 ways to build a church, it's right there. And, and, and the different steps you gotta go through. And I love the, the nice graphs, the thermometers they give you and the growth charts they give you. It's all really good stuff. Don't you just find that? And then the book of Acts is just great on applying all this stuff, you know? You have this real-life example kind of stuff where Peter, on the day of Pentecost, don't you find this? You know, for weeks and weeks and weeks, he plotted, he strategized, he got his thermometers, he got his charts out, he got his programs, he had his committee set up, he had all of that in place, and his target goal was 3,000, sorry for spitting, and by golly, he got that 3,000. People up front, they got to wear, wear windshield wipers when I get excited. And that right, and then on, on, in Acts chapter 8, he, he targeted the Samaritans. Yes, he tailored his message to meet the Samaritans. He did all these kind of things, and he got the Samaritans. And then in Acts chapter 10, he was so eager to go to the Gentiles, wasn't he? And he just strategized and planned and got all the foundations laid and got all his communities together, and they successfully won over the Gentiles. Isn't that right? Don't you just find the, the, the Bible oozing with that kind of stuff? You don't find that, do you? What you find in the book of Acts. And I'm not, I'm not against, like, I'm not against planning for the future, Lord forbid. And I'm not against being practical, and I'm not against any of this. But I, what I am saying is that you don't build a church on that basis. What you build a church on the basis of is what the Word of God tells us to, to build a church on. And what you find in the book of Acts is this. You had people who simply understood who they were in Christ, and people who were passionate about being who they were in Christ. And when you've got people who are passionate about that, everything else tends to follow. Look at Acts chapter 2. They had a real complicated church growth strategy here. They were devoted to the word. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to each other. And they were excited about Jesus. There you go. If you've got those four things, friends, you just don't need a whole lot of charts and thermometers and programs and strategies. I don't believe you do. Because you've got an incredible dynamic energy there that is going to cause the church to grow if the church is supposed to grow. And they had a revival. The 3,000 were added unto the church the first day, and they had a revival that eventually transformed the Mediterranean world and eventually transformed the entire world. And it didn't take a professional coming up with a strategy to do it. What it took was people who were passionate about who they were and understood who they were, just being the church, and God adds unto the church daily as many as should be saved. We want to be about the same things as the book of Acts, Without being simple-minded and, and, and not you know, thinking practically about you know, our culture, we want the heart of our church to be exactly what the heart of the Book of Acts church was about. What that means for us is this. We want to be passionate about being, just being who God called us to be. Just be it. Doing will follow after that. Paul says we exist to the praise of God's glory. The very fact, right now, I am just existing to the praise of God's glory. It's got nothing to do with appearance. Because my appearance probably doesn't. But it's got everything to do with the mystery of what Jesus did for me on the cross. I'm glorifying God right now. You're glorifying God right now. We are all vessels of God's grace. Let's get passionate about that. Let's get passionate about worship. Let's pour out ourselves into worship. Let's worship God like there was no tomorrow. Let's just abandon all of our cares and concerns and worship God with a, with a fire in our heart. Because that's who we are. That's what we're called to do. That's We are to the glory of God. We don't do it as a as an outreach kind of program or as a strategy or as a number building kind of gimmicks. I hate number building kind of gimmicks. Someone find me one verse in the Bible that is concerned about numbers. It's just not there. 
which we should be concerned with is Jesus. God adds unto the church the numbers. But we do it because of who we are. And we want this to be a body that manifests. As much as God gives us the power to do it, that manifests the radical, the radical kind of loving, dynamic, brick-on-brick brick kind of unity we talked about last week. We want this to be a, a body that really is the kind of thing that Christ can work through, or a bride that's got all the members there. We want this to be a, a body that manifests a kind of unity, a gender unity, a racial unity, a socioeconomic unity that the world simply cannot give. We want this to be a place that does that, but our motive is not to target this kind of audience or because we can get a couple more people here or because you know we will be politically correct and we'll appease the feminists and whatever you might think of the motive is simply that Jesus Christ did it how can we not do it if Jesus Christ has united the races how can we not manifest that in our being if Jesus Christ has if, if, if in Christ Galatians 327 there's no male nor female how can we do other but then express an unconditional love and acceptance of each other regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of whatever. We do it because of the mystery, because we are it. It's already done. We're simply living out what, who we are because of Christ, and that's our only motivation. And if we get this, if we understand this, and the Holy Spirit's got to do it, I, I find myself right now like trying to make words do it, and I've got to remind myself, words don't do it. They, even Paul's words didn't do it. He had to pray that the Holy Spirit would do it. But when this happens, it changes the face of the church completely. When we can see as Christ sees each other and ourselves as Christ sees, according to the mystery of, of who we are in Christ, it changes everything. If you've got a church that's addicted to programs, doing programs, doing stuff, building things, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Then you need professionals, the religious men, the, the, you know, the high and mighties, because they're the only ones who understand it. But if you live according to the mystery, whereas that model, the first model, empowers the professionals, this model empowers people. You are the church, just be the church. Be the church. Let the reality of Christ flow through you. Love one another as Christ loves. Accept one another. Show on a Sunday morning basis, as you're up there in the, in the room today, go out of your way to demonstrate the reality of Christ's love to everyone that you see. That's the church. Hold on on Friday night. That was the church. You are the church. It's got nothing to do with professionals. Holy Spirit, we need you right now to make this clear to us. It's, it's, it's your vision, Lord. It's the one that you laid out in, in, in the Bible. And we would ask, Lord God, that you would just open the eyes of our heart to help us to see that each of us are ministers. Each of us are called to be an aspect of your body. Lord, we would pray, God, that you'd put a spirit in this place that would just tear down all the division walls that we carry with us as we come here. Lord God, let your love and your grace that has no conditions and has no boundaries be manifest in our lives. As it's in your name. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. I appreciate you. I, I really do.